Good morning. Let me invite you to take a Bible, turn to Genesis chapter 38. If you're looking at a pew Bible this morning, you'll find that on page 40. I'll be reading Genesis chapter 38 in its entirety. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to his servant Adolamite, whose name was Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite woman, a Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Kazib when she bore him. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her, and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went to his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground, so as to not give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up, for he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira the Adolamite. And when Tamar was told, Your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up, and sat at the entrance to Anaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me that you may come into me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, If you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, What pledge shall I give you? She replied, Your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away, and taking the veil off, she put on her garments of her widowhood. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Adolamite to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, Where is the cult prostitute who was at a name at the roadside? And they said, No cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have, not, I have not found her. Also, the men of the place said, no cult, no cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, Let her keep the things as her own, or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat, and, she did not, and you did not find her. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, Bring her out, and let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, By the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, Please identify whose these are, the signet, the cord, and the staff. 
Then Judah identified them and said, She is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son Shelah, and he did not know her again. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb, and, she was in, and, she, and when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took it and tied a scarlet thread on it, saying, This one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out. And she said, What a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore his name was called Perez. Afterward his brother came out with a scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called, was called Zerah. This is the word of the Lord. Merry Christmas. <laughs> well, as many of you know, in recent weeks we've embarked on the story of Joseph, and I don't think it's too much of a spoiler to tell you that Joseph's life is a story about providence. It demonstrates how everything, even down to the most meticulous of details, everything is under the sovereign control of a wise and loving God, a God who knows the end from the beginning, a God who works all things together for his glory and for the good of those that love him. So in keeping with that theme, I thought it would be appropriate, at least for the first of what are um, kind of two Christmas Sundays this year, I thought it'd be fine if we just simply took whatever came next in our exposition of Genesis. And I hope you'll agree, what a perfect passage that the Lord has providentially picked for us. I'm, I'm not even joking. It's difficult to imagine a text that is more timely and relevant. Though admittedly, this is not a text that we would have chosen for ourselves. This is not the kind of passage that just leaps to the mind of a preacher when he's brainstorming holiday sermon topics. But once again, we're reminded that our thoughts are not God's thoughts. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are much higher than our own, and his ways much higher than ours. Turns out that Genesis chapter 38 is included in the all things that is declared to be uh, breathed out by God. It's scripture, and it's profitable, therefore, for teaching and for correcting, for rebuke, for training in righteousness so that the man or woman or even boy or girl might be trained for every good work. So I'm going to take a similar tack as our county officials took this week, which, you know, they've said that they're going to just forward all of the complaints regarding the mask mandate to the State Department of Health. Well, if you've got a problem with this Yuletide text, then I'm going to just refer you to the Lord who providentially put it into our laps today. But I am confident uh, that you're going to be able to see just how wonderfully this passage points us to the Messiah who came into the world to save sinners. That's a trustworthy saying. That's something that you can take to the bank. He came to save sinners like me and like you. To turn our attention to this chapter, let us first consider the mess of the story. The mess of the story. This is 
what we encounter in the first 25 verses, and, and it'll take the bulk of our time to consider. You know, one of the great blessings of having kids is that you get to introduce them to all of the wonderful Christmas stories and characters that, that you enjoyed when you were a kid whether it's Rudolph or Frosty or the Grinch or the abominable snow monster of the north, a.k.a. Bumble, um, whether it's White Christmas or It's a Wonderful Life or Elf, it's a great thing to be able to show your kids these classic stories. And the other night we introduced Job to Ralphie and to his official Red Rider carbine action 200-shot range model air rifle with compass in the stock and this thing that tells time. And uh, we had a wonderful time introducing that to the next generation. There's so many great Christmas stories, but I suppose that the one that affected me the most when I was a boy was this one. It's called The, the Best Christmas Pageant Ever. And it's the story of an unruly family called the Herdmans who bully their way into leading roles in the Sunday school Christmas pageant. And as the story develops, the Herdmans live up to their reputation as, quote, the worst kids in the history of the world. You know, they've got unscrubbed faces, they've got raggedy clothes, they can often be found smoking cigars. And when the class is brainstorming about where, where can they find a little baby to play the role of Jesus, uh, Imogene Herdman suggests that they kidnap one. By the standards of the respectable church members, you know, and, and, and all of their very prim and proper kids, everything about that whole scenario was wrong. It was chaotic. It was very uncomfortable. It was unbelievably messy. By the way, the, the villains in this book, again, I don't like spoiling things for you, but the villains in this book are not the juvenile delinquents. They're the church folk. They're, and the church for, folk are portrayed according to the stereotype, uh, which is snooty, pretentious, gossipy, judgmental, you know, having everything together and in order and unable to cope with any kind of coloring that's outside of the lines. Unfortunately, that stereotype exists for a reason. We have to ask ourselves, is this the vibe that we give off? Now brace yourself because this, what I'm about to say, is going to be the most controversial thing that I say today. In contrast to those classic uh, Christmas movies that I referenced just a minute ago, you've got, on the other hand, the Hallmark Channel, which cranks out these boilerplate plots, just mass-producing melodrama that is shallow and saccharine. It's, it's revolting, in, in my humble opinion. And the main characters are always models. You know, they, there's nary a hair out of place. Uh, their personalities are bland. The dialogue is stilted. The setting is always some luxurious but 
in cozy home and they're always like curled up with a steaming mug of something. And, and when the narrative arc, and I'm being very generous when I say arc, <laughs> when it calls for conflict, the, the screenwriters just kind of throw in a, a slight misunderstanding between the love interests, and usually a snowstorm. Both of which just peter out as, as quickly as they started. Church folks sometimes resemble the characters in Hallmark movies. You know, we're very well put together, at least on Sunday mornings, and the sins we confess are not much more than misunderstandings or, or simple oversights. Our, our dialogue is often shallow and inauthentic. And if a sinner happened to walk through the doors of the church, he or she would likely feel as much an outsider as a city slicker in the idyllic small town that every single Hallmark movie is set in. We, we desperately need the reminder, don't we, that... Such were some of you. And this is why I love the best Christmas pageant ever. It's messy, but it's real. This is why I love the Bible, because it's true. It's totally authentic. And because of that, it's messy. And by this point in our study of Genesis, you must have realized that the biblical authors don't sanitize anything. And that's a good thing. That, that's for our good. Because to fully appreciate the heights of what we have in the gospel, we first have to understand the depths of our sin. Again, what makes Hallmark movies so lame is that the, the minimal conflict results in an equally minimal resolution. And, it, you know, if two lovers can be reconciled in the time that it takes for a nor'easter to blow over, then was their relationship really ever in danger? In contrast to this, the Bible is not afraid to expose the depth and the mess of human depravity and sin. And it does so that it can so that it can magnify the, the dimensions of the the grace of God that's displayed in the gospel. It's that simple. It's a simple formula. Do you, do you want to know the mercy? Then you've got to take a hard look at the mess. And that's exactly what we're going to do this morning. Here we go. Buckle up. This chapter is a bit of an interruption to the Joseph story. It's not exactly clear why the narrator chooses at this point to look at Judah. It could be as simple of an explanation as there is no better place for it. Um, as we're going to see, Judah is going to emerge as the leader of this family. And by the blessing of Jacob, his father, and by the will of God, his line is going to be given the scepter which is to say that Judah's family is going to result in the kingly line. 
So the narrator really wants us to understand something about Judah and about his life and his family and his spiritual development. And so this is as good a time as any to begin to trace that, I think the author must be thinking. And also it has the added benefit of letting some time elapse so that when we pick back up with Joseph in chapter 39, uh, he's already established in Egypt. We need to give him some time to, uh, to get established there as a slave in Potiphar's house. This is why here in chapter 38, we're, we're not immediately following Joseph down to Egypt. Instead, we're following Judah down to Adullam to the land of the Canaanites. And this is, for Judah, not just a going down geographically, this is a spiritual descent. This is Judah choosing deliberately to go away from the people of God and the place of God and to attach himself to the godless Canaanites. He becomes fast friends with a guy named Hira. And then he marries a woman the daughter of another guy named Shua. And you have to understand that marrying a Canaanite in the Old Testament is the equivalent of yoking yourself together with an unbeliever. It's something that Judah's father and, and grandfathers were adamantly opposed to. They, they, were, they were zealous that their sons would not water down the godliness of the line by marrying these wicked women from this wicked tribe and people. But Judah obviously doesn't have the same scruples. The only thing that seems to matter to him is that she's hot. Um, that's basically there in verse 2, although granted not exactly those words. But he sees her. That's the operative thing there. He sees her. He took her. And then, well, he took her. And what you have there in that verse are three very terse verbs indicating that there's really not much more to their relationship than that. For her part, it's just as terse. Three more verbs. She conceived, gave birth, and named the son Ur. And then the cycle repeats itself, and she gives birth to a second son, Onan, and yet again, and she calls that son Sheila. I guess she was hoping for a girl, maybe. In due course, though, Ur comes of age, and his father set him up with a girl named Tamar. The problem is that Ur is a very wicked man. And we're spared the, the details of the nature of his wickedness. It doesn't, in the end, matter. What matters is that he was evil in the sight of God. And that phrase there, you, you see it appear throughout the Old Testament. That phrase teaches us what we understand to be the case instinctively, which is that God is a holy and righteous judge. And we are accountable to him as his creatures. And there's no other eyes that matter in terms of who's judging you. I imagine that Ur was involved in just typical... Canaanite activity and what he did was likely right in his own eyes and the eyes of the culture that he was growing up in 
But those are not reliable indicators of what is truly right or wrong. You, you shouldn't take any comfort in the fact that, that the world is going to totally accept your perversion as normal or that they're going to applaud you for your abortion or encourage your violence. What you should worry about is how your creator and judge views you and your heart and your behavior. In Ur's case, God judged him to be wicked, and so he put him to death. That's, that's not the first time that we've seen in the Bible that God punishes evil, but it is the first time that we've seen the Lord directly punish an individual by death. And that death is directly correlated to that person's wickedness. So it's, I guess, in the text so far, it's rare, but don't let the rarity of it lead you astray. Okay, don't think that this is some sort of aberration. This is actually the rule. The wages of sin is death. And what Ur received is exactly what he deserved. And it's what we all deserve. Now, this next part is a tad confusing because, uh, because of our cultural distance from what's being described here. Um, it was common practice at that time that, and later this is going to be enshrined in the law of God. It's something that God approves of at that time and place, that if a man died before he could produce an heir, it was expected of his closest brother that that brother would take his deceased brother's widow and uh, to be with her in an attempt to produce a male heir. And if, if a male heir did result from that union, that son would be considered the offspring of the dead brother, not the latest brother, the, the dead brother, and therefore that son would be heir to all of the brother's property and inheritance and all of the rights that are associated with the deceased man. This custom is called Leverite marriage, and it was designed in a way, it, it has multiple purposes. One of them is to continue the man's line in the event of his untimely death, and it's all, so it's a way of honoring the man and, and also at the same time caring for his widow, which in that time and place, if you're a, a, a woman, a widow, you have nothing. You have no support unless you have a husband or a son or a father. But if that woman could have a son by her brother-in-law, then she's going to have hope for the future. This would be a very sacrificial thing for this new brother to do because it would mean that he's spending his time and his energy and his resources on raising a son that was not going to be considered his, rather his, it's his brother. So in the case of Tamar, the responsibility to do this type of thing falls on Onan, the second brother. But we read that Onan was also very wicked. And this time, we are told, we are given some of the details of his 
wickedness, uh, as much as we wish that we weren't <laughs> given the details. You see, Onan didn't like the idea that this offspring would not be his. He was repulsed by the idea that he would create a kid and then be responsible for him, and that kid is, is going to be entitled down the line to his brother's property and inheritance. All that stuff that otherwise would have gone to Onan. So this, this just sounds horrible to Onan. He doesn't want the product, but that doesn't mean that he didn't enjoy the process, if you get what I mean. As it, as, it, as it stands, what he has in Tamar, he, he might have put it, is a sister-in-law with benefits. And they keep trying, but evil Onan would find a way to withhold the crucial ingredient so that there would be no bun in the oven. I'm trying to put this as delicately as possible. But that is evil in the sight of the Lord. And so he put Onan to death as well. Now down through church history, there's, there's been great misunderstanding and misinterpretation in regards to the evil of Onan. His name is even attached to an ism, which is, you know, a, it's a disordered act in which it's supposed that the, the sin consists in wasting seed that is somehow sacred. And that view has been parodied to great effect by Monty Python. I hope that it's obvious to you that Onan's sin consists in his dishonoring of his deceased brother by refusing to provide an heir for him as well as in his using of his sister-in-law for pleasure rather than for the intended purpose. It's not because there's anything sacred about what he spilled. It's, it's, it has everything to do with his dereliction of his duty and his contempt for his deceased brother and his widow. Now, the custom of Levite marriage seems so far removed from us that, it, that we can hardly relate to it. But when you think about it, Onan's sin, his, his true sin, not what you know, the church fathers thought or whatever, his true sin is actually very common today, isn't it? What we have in our culture is a, a deadly combination of prolonged adolescence, and delayed adulthood, and dating apps, which is actually have nothing to do with dating, female empowerment, contraception, the hookup culture. You, you add all of these components, and what, what do you have? You have a deadly combination. You have men using women, extracting all of the pleasure and avoiding all of the responsibility. You've got women who don't even realize to the extent to which they're craving stability and commitment and kids. And these women are expected to sacrifice their most fertile years to irresponsible man-children who just want nothing more than cheap hookups. That's the real Onanism. 
and it is wicked in the sight of God. And by rights, if you indulge in it, whether physically or virtually, you should be struck dead. Well, that's two of Judah's sons dead. And he's very scared about his remaining son, likely because this Sheila kid's probably showing early signs of being evil too. But Sheila's too young to be given to Tamar, so Tamar has to wait until he becomes, comes of age. In the meantime, Jacob sends her back to her father's house so that he won't have to support her. And actually, Judah has no intention of giving Sheila to Tamar because he believes her to be a widowmaker. Rather than connecting the dots between his son's death and their wickedness and their sin, he, Judah chooses to believe that Tamar is somehow cursed. And it's very interesting that, that Judah is extremely fearful of being left without an heir, but he has zero concern for Tamar, who is in exactly that same position currently, without an heir. Well, time passes, and it's clear that Judah has no intention of giving his remaining son to his daughter-in-law. The kid keeps having birthdays and he turns into a man and nothing. So she has to take matters into her own hands. And by verse 12, Judah himself is a widower. And after his uh, obligatory mourning period, he's ready to get back in the game, so to speak. He's, it's sheep shearing time, which is usually a festive time. It's a time for uh, letting loose. And Tamar hears of this, and she knows her father-in-law well enough to know what his particular temptations are going to be. So she goes up to the area where he's shearing sheep. She conceals her identity. She poses as a prostitute who's working the, the streets there. And sure enough, Judah comes on the scene, and uh, he's interested in what she's peddling. And they negotiate the price. And it's agreed that the price is going to be a young goat from Judah's flock. And the trouble is he doesn't have it with him. So she asks for a pledge, uh, a deposit, if you will, which she's going to return as soon as he makes the payment. And the pledge is going to be his signet and cord and staff. A signet and cord is like a cylindrical stamp that's got his signature on it. And it's a cord because it's usually worn around the neck. And staff, it's a very ornamental carved piece that both of those things are highly personalized, which is going to become important. That's kind of the point. Well, Judah... I'm going to fast forward through some of the details there and just tell you that Judah is a man of his word. Well, not so much with his daughter-in-law, but but with prostitutes. He impeccable. He he sends his buddy, the Adulamite, back with his payment, the goat, so that he can retrieve his possessions. But when Hira comes to the street corner, he looks all over, but he can't find her. He, he, he asks the town folk. He's like, hey, where, where's that 
cult prostitute who works this corner. She, she, she used to be here. She was here a couple of weeks ago. And they said, we don't, we don't have any cult prostitutes here. I don't know what you're talking about. And uh, so Hiram is, or Hira is forced to return to Judah with the goat and with the belonging, without the belongings. This is a potentially embarrassing situation. So Judah is like, let's just forget about it. You know, I, you see, I tried to make good on my payment. Let, let her keep that stuff. We'll just chalk this whole thing up to a loss and move on. Well, fast forward three months. It was told Judah that Tamar was pregnant through immorality. And technically, she's betrothed to Sheila, so this is a capital offense. This is outrageous. And Judah is full of righteous indignation. So he says, bring her out and let her be burned. So they go and get Tamar, and as she's being led to the fire, she pulls out the signet and cord and staff and sends them to the father-in-law and says, uh, oh, by the way, these belong to the man who has impregnated me. Uh, see if you can identify them. Boom. See if you can identify them. Does that sound familiar? You know, a few years back, Judah and his brothers had said exactly the same thing to their father as they held up this bloodied and, and torn coat of many colors. And now Judah is trapped by these same words in another classic thou art the man moment in scripture. Well, let's try to make some sense out of this mess under our second point, which is the best of the story. The best of the story. Here we're focused on verse 26. Now, in, in any story, it's, it's in our nature to want to identify the good guys and the bad guys, but often that's easier said than done. Things are usually quite a bit more complicated than our tidy categories allow. So the Herdman kids, for example, in this book, are they, are they villains or heroes? Uh, what about the Grinch? Uh, what about Bumble? What about the eight other reindeer? And those examples make the point that the best kind of stories, I hope you'll agree, are ones wherein the characters are transformed, where they undergo a major change and they, they move from villain to hero. They, the best kind of stories, I hope you'll agree, are ones in which sinners are made into saints. In the present story, it's very hard to sift through all of this mess to see if there's any kind of morality here. The sons, that's, that's easy enough. The sons are certainly villains. And Judah is not much better, although it's, it's a little confusing because he's perfected the art of appearing and speaking as if he's holier than he actually is. You know, he's full of righteous indignation. He's full of um, duty to do the right thing, but everywhere he's failing and sinning. In reality, Judah is a scoundrel. 
So it's very encouraging to hear him admit in verse 26 that Tamar is the one who has acted righteously in all of this. If there's a bright spot in this whole mess, it's Tamar. Judah confesses his sin, essentially, of withholding his son, his his only son, from his daughter-in-law, and he declares that her actions are actually justified. So far, Tamar is the best of this story. Her act, sketchy as it was, was an act of faith. Here's a Canaanite woman, an outsider, who is more concerned about preserving the covenant family than the family themselves are concerned about it. And so wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. Now we can't linger very long on this point, but I do want to just kind of tease you with the transformation that now begins in Judah's life. This will be very fun for us to trace over the next number of chapters. And the transformation begins on the basis of this confession, it seems. So he confesses his sin. He turns from his sin. Look at the end of verse 26. The end of verse 26 says that he... He did not know her again. And by the end of Genesis, we're going to see even more evidence of God's grace in the life of this man whose whose line is destined to become kings. And you'll want to to stick with our study in the new year. That's just a little plug for you. In the meantime, let's look thirdly at the blessed of this story. The blessed. Who's blessed? Verse 27 to 30. So the saga continues with a delightful nativity story. See, this is a Christmas message. When the time came for Tamar to give birth, wouldn't you know it, twins! It was almost like the Lord is graciously compensating her for all of her suffering at the hands of Judah and his sons. Not just one son, but two sons. And wouldn't you know it, these twins were scrapping each other, trying to beat the other out into the world. So one, one stuck his hand out. You know, I, I picture this, you know, similar to the same way that you do when you're, you're with your siblings in the car. Uh, you're going over the river and through the woods, and you're going to grandma's house on Christmas, and you're about to cross the state line and like you want to be in Pennsylvania first. Do you guys not do that? <laughs> I still do that. <laughs> so the one kid sticks his hand out and the, the midwife marks the victory by giving the kid a red ribbon. And this has the, the effect also of allowing them to later on identify which one was the older one without getting them confused. But that was actually a little bit premature because now the other kid's yanking him back and leapfrogging over him for the win. And they called that kid Perez because what a breach that kid just made for himself. This is the Bible's first breach, baby. 
Afterwards, the older brother comes out with that red ribbon, and they call him Zara. I don't know if that's ringing any bells to you at all, but man, it sure sounds familiar to me. If, if these were murders instead of births, and we were detectives, we might connect the dots to a serial killer by noticing his calling card. You know, that unique thing that a killer leaves behind, whether it's a moth or a joker playing card. What am I doing? This is Christmas for goodness sake. I, I'm trying to give you an illustration about serial killers. This is, this is too far. Let me, how about this? How do you know that, that Santa's been to your house? I mean, besides the presents under the tree. Well, you see, you see the plate, and the plate's empty except for some cookie crumbs, and you see a cup that's only got you know, just a little bit of milk in the bottom, and those are Santa's signatures. That those are proof positive that he's been there. In the same way as we've been working our way through Genesis, we ought to conclude by now that when twins arrive on the scene and the, under, the, the younger has gained the upper hand on the older, we ought to think to ourselves, ah, that is classic Yahweh. That's his calling card. That's his signature move. It's evidence that God has been on the scene. And he's been on the scene to bless. What's more, he's blessing in such a way that is opposite to convention. This is how you know it's the Lord. He, he's blessing the younger instead of the older. That's not how it's done. But that's how the Lord does it. He blesses Perez rather than Zara. And this, he does this on purpose so that we wouldn't miss the fact that God has been at work. God does things this way in order to shame convention. He does this so that we would be sure to give him all the glory and not try to steal some for ourselves. Well, that's the end of the passage. But that's not the end of the story. So let's channel Paul Harvey for this last point. The rest of the story, point number four. The rest of the story. Now, Judah's family might have wished that there wasn't a rest of the story. You know, having emerged from this mess, they might have agreed among themselves, let's never speak of this again. You know, what, what happens in Canaan stays in Canaan. You know this, that there, there are certain things that you just can't speak about when your family gets together for Christmas dinner. There's people, there's histories, there's sleeping arrangements, there's scandals that simply must not be mentioned. The, the shame would just be way too much for your grandmother to bear. There's skeletons in the closet. There's elephants in the room. And, and if we don't talk about them, maybe they'll just go away. In regards to the whole Judah and Tamar mess, things are kept on the, on the DL for the next couple of thousand years. So that's good. But then we come to Matthew chapter 1. 
Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Ooh, the book of the genealogy. That's sounding like Genesis, doesn't it? Okay, this is good. So Matthew's going to give the genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ. The, Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Oh, this is great because Matthew's going to show how Jesus is tied um, to the King David, but then further back to Abraham. Matthew's going to show how Jesus is actually the fulfillment of all of the promises that are made to the patriarchs. Yeah, this is, this is awesome. All right, let's go. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah. Okay, so, so far, so good. This is, this is great. This is actually right where we are now in Genesis. And Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Oh, oh Matt, really, Matthew? You just had to go there, didn't you? He actually went out of his way to go there because it's very uncommon for a genealogy to mention women. A, a lineage might make a special uh, allowance for a very high-status woman, like one of the matriarchs maybe, but Tamar, the lady who posed as a prostitute, so her father-in-law would impregnate her? Yes. And he's also included in verse 5, uh, Rahab, the, the prostitute. And later in that verse, Ruth, the Moabitess. Moab, the, a people that is formed out of the incest between Lot and his daughters. Matthew also goes out of his way to mention the mother of David's son, son Solomon. Look at verse 6. Solomon came by the wife of Uriah. Ugh. Really, Matthew, you've got to bring that up? That's actually a double whammy. That's a reminder not just of David's adultery, but of his attempted cover-up by way of murder. Matthew, what on earth are you doing? You're, you're mentioning all of the unmentionables. Can't you, can't you clean this up a little bit? You're giving the genealogy of Jesus Christ the Messiah, for goodness sake. But that's just it. As Matthew is going to explain to, um, when he writes about Joseph's encounter with the angel, in verse 21, they're to call this boy Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And this story of Judah is just one of the many hundreds, maybe thousands, that make up the Old Testament and demonstrate beyond a shadow of a doubt that his people are in desperate need of saving. We're a complete mess, which is exactly why we need a Messiah. As the old hymn says, not the righteous, not the righteous, sinners, Jesus came to save. Jesus has nothing to offer people who purport to have everything together. He's got nothing for you. But to those who see their need of him, Jesus offers everything. 
salvation and life and peace and forgiveness and cleansing from all unrighteousness and healing. And here's the thing, you don't have to clean yourself up to come to him. You come to him and he'll clean you. Come, come to him, all you who are weary and worn and broken and bruised from the fall, all you who are stained by sin. He, he will embrace you in his arms. Matthew's genealogy reminds us that the Lord Jesus Christ is not ashamed to be identified with sinners. He, he claims us as his own. He, he comes to us in our sin, in our messy condition, and he abides with us, and he saves us. It makes me think about the angel of the Lord, Gladys, with her skinny legs and her dirty sneakers sticking out from under her robe, yelling at all of us everywhere, Hey! Unto you a child is born. This is, this is the very best news that a complete mess could ever hear. Whether that mess's name is Judah, Herdman, or Theobald, this is good news you this Christmas. And I trust that this season you will find rest in our merciful Messiah. Amen? Amen.